usually he comes back out, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I thought you were going to stay back there, Joe. I was tempted to, actually. You and a lot of other people. Hey. Thank you, Joe, for leading us in that worship time. Uh, please join me in prayer here as we get started. Father, again, we acknowledge your presence, your existence, uh, your being here with us, that you have given us your word that we can trust, that we can read, that we can learn from. Help us uh, as we look into a small portion of it here this morning, that your spirit would cause us to uh, hear and to, to listen, to hear and to heed what you have to say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a couple of months ago, in November, I think it was, uh, a message was given from this pulpit entitled, The Mandela Effect. Philemon meets Mandela, if you remember that. Well, this Sunday we're going to have the liminal effect, where Israel meets Yahweh in the desert. But we're going to have to learn a new word. We're going to have to you know, get used to this word, or at least familiar with this word, liminal. I realize that's probably a new word, was for me, until a few months ago when I started reading about this, this concept. Uh, our outline, I think you can see it in the thing, it's a, it's a very easy to follow outline here this morning. We're going to have an introduction. That introduction is going to be to the liminal effect, just understanding a bit what that is. And then we're going to have an exposition of the exodus liminal experience or effect. And then we're going to apply it, the application for uh, regarding this liminal effect. So introduction, exposition, application. We introduce this, this word liminal with a story. In 1914, just uh, almost exactly 110 years ago, a fellow named Ernest Shackleton, a British um, adventurer, wanted to take a ship. Uh, so he got a ship, a crew of men, and he wanted to go be the first one to cross the Antarctic continent. So they headed down south. They didn't get very far before this ship, the Explorer, was, was uh, caught in ice and stuck in ice, and at that, as soon as that happened, they entered into uh, what we call a liminal time. It is a time that's in between something that you're familiar with, and you know about, and something that is going to happen that you're not familiar with, and you're not sure how it's going to end. That's a liminal time, and they entered into that once the ship got uh, stuck. And it was stuck for quite a few months, and they started to run out of fuel, uh, just to keep warm, and the, and the food was getting uh, short and shorter, if food can get shorter. Finally, uh, because of the pressure of the ice, the ship buckled and it started to sink, so they had to get into the lifeboats, which they did, and which was still on ice, so they were in lifeboats on ice. The ice flow started to break up, so they were literally at the whim of the weather as they floated around in the lifeboats on the big chunks of ice. Finally, they got to a deserted island and uh, got on shore and they felt a little bit better. But uh, Shackleton realized that, uh, man, if he didn't do something, that they would probably all perish, die of starvation. So they decided that, that he got some of them in and they uh, were going to head out to an island that they knew was inhabited, St. George Island, which was 800 miles away across open water. So they got in one of the lifeboats and, and headed out. And that's where the reality of this 
liminal effect hit them even harder as they went through storms and ice flows and were challenged with their physical and mental abilities. But they, they did make it to St. George Island where there, where there were people there that helped them and they were able to get a uh, rescue team to go back to the other island and they, uh, even though it was a very difficult time and there was very little food, nobody died, everybody survived. But that's a classic example of the concept of liminality, of being in between where you, of something that you're familiar with in that stage of life and entering into a period that you're not sure how it's going to end. It's a time of uncertainty, a time between what is known and what is not known. With that story illustration, let's, uh, let's move just before we get to our scripture reading, which is coming, uh, to the actual definition of the term that we're going to be using here this, a fair bit this morning and the etymology of the word. Dictionaries define liminal as a metaphorical threshold. That is, it's a time of in-between, it's a time of transition comes from the root word lemon, which literally means threshold. So it's the idea of being on a threshold, of being in between one room, like this. If there was something on the floor, this would be a threshold, okay? It's what a, it's what a groom carries the bride over. Usually that's a pretty brief time. We're talking about an extended time on the threshold that's what liminal means. It's that time when you're on that threshold. Something that was familiar, and you're going into something that's not familiar. This time, that time frame can last quite a while, or it can be short, but that's what we're talking about. The concept was further developed by anthropologists in the early 1900s, uh, where they saw the phenomenon in other cultures, particularly in rites of passage. It's like when uh, young men or young boys and girls uh, become men and women. They thought that's a rite of passage, and it's a liminal time. It's a time when they're not still youth, but neither are they adults. So they, the anthropologist said, that's, uh, we'll call that liminality. So that's a new word, I realize that. Uh, the term has broadened in the last hundred years to include any prolonged time. So it's not just rites of passage in, in cultures, but it's any prolonged time of transition, of waiting, of wondering how is this going to end. It's generally characterized by confusion, ambiguity, a bit of discomfort, because we're leaving something that's comfortable, or that at least is familiar, to something that we're not quite sure. We've, we may have heard about it, but we're not quite sure how, how it all works out. There can be discomfort, disorientation. Uh, some liminality, some liminal times are more positive and more uh, enjoyable than others, as we shall see. This is the liminal effect. Israel meets Yahweh in the desert. Please stand if you're able. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 19, starting at verse 16. We're going to read some selected verses until we get down to chapter 20, verse 7. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, 
There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, he's going to be giving the Ten Commandments, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Jumping down to verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. Please be seated. We're moving from introduction to the exposition. We're going to be looking at three things in this uh, expedition time. We're going to look at your <laughs> exposition. The Exodus story, then the mountain experience, and then the commandment focus. The Exodus story, we're going to be flying at 30,000 feet, looking at the, the broadest context, that is, where does this story fit in the whole Bible? The mountain experience, we're going to get down a little bit lower at 7,500 feet, which is the height of Mount Sinai, although we're going to stay at the base. And that's the intermediate context. We're going to look at the story in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The last one, the commandment focus, we're going to get down into the weeds. We're going to get really down into the weeds in the narrowest context as we look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. The first, the Exodus story. story of the Israelites escaping from Egypt and traipsing around the wilderness there for 40 years. It's probably the most well-known story of the Old Testament. Probably, certainly one of the most well-known stories of the, all of the Bible. And it is one of the most referred to stories in both the Old and the New Testament. For an example of that, we won't turn there, but just think in your mind back to that sermon, well, that talk that uh, Stephen gave uh, just before he was stoned to death. There, the deacon Stephen, and he was giving a, an apologetic for the Christian faith in Acts chapter 7, is it? 37 of those verses, he's referring to this Exodus story. And it's referred to uh, many other places in Scripture as well. In the Reformation Study Bible, the uh, introductory notes for the book of Exodus informs us that this whole Exodus, desert wandering story, and I quote, provides an important illustration of God's saving work. The Savior God redeems his chosen people from the powers of evil, judges those powers, and claims his people as his firstborn son, a holy nation of priests, and kings among whom he dwells. At the heart of this process is the Passover. Not only as God's Savior, but he invites them to accept him as their king through the covenant at Mount Sinai. Pretty good summary. Another summary from the Christian Standard Bible, Introduction to Exodus, we find that this Exodus story is central to the Old Testament because, again I quote, it records God's act of saving the Israelites and establishing them as a covenant community 
a nation chosen to serve and represent him. Just want to uh, highlight that. Chosen to serve and to represent him. We're going to get back to that here later on here this morning. As to the theme of liminal space, Christian anthropologists and scholars are unanimous in declaring this whole Exodus story as the archetypical, quintessential, liminal experience of all Scripture. There are other contenders, but Exodus holds the title as liminal example number one, and we'll see why. It was a time when Israel was on the threshold between Egypt and the Promised Land. They were on the threshold between slavery and freedom. They were on the threshold between land workers and land owners. They were on the threshold between being a loose ethnic band of people under Pharaoh to being a united nation under God. It was a time of danger, disappointment, discouragement, discipline, but it was also a time of exhilaration and some excitement, was it not? It was a time of seeing God's deliverance time after time. It was a time of seeing Israel's failure time after time after time. It was a time of waiting. It was a time of being on a threshold. A time of becoming. Becoming a nation prepared by God to enter the promised land. It was a liminal time. A liminal time of 40 years. <clears throat> you perhaps have seen that... Uh, painting by Leonardo da Vinci of The Last Supper. I'll try and picture it in your mind. I'm pretty sure most of you have seen that. It has Jesus sitting in the very center of a long table. There are six disciples on one side. There are six disciples on the other side. Jesus, there's some, there's three slightly lit windows in the background, and Jesus is in this very center of that center window, there are four pillars on that side of the, and four pillars on that side, and all of the perspective is such that it just drives you to the centerpiece, which is the very face of Jesus. Very well done to focus on Christ, what uh, Leonardo came up with there. That is a picture of the narrative arrangement of the Torah, of the first five books of the, of the Bible. <clears throat> in that narrative, the Exodus story is the centerpiece of those five books of the Bible. It's just written in, in, that, uh, in that fashion to help, uh, help the people remember the story and to remember what the main part of that story is. So now we're flying at 7,500 feet. We're down at the, we've, uh, we've come down from 30,000 feet. We're looking at this whole story of Exodus in the Torah in the Torah, and that narrative arrangement of those first five books, because it reads the way da Vinci paints, it drives us to the center point of what's happening at Mount Sinai. I'm not saying that it's the most important necessarily chapter, because uh, certainly Genesis chapter 1 is extremely important, but it is, as most Bible scholars tell us, the centerpiece in the narrative formation of the, of the storyline of the first five books of the Bible. The Exodus with Mount Sinai primarily as the centerpiece of that. That's where we would be driven to. Did you know that there are six campsites recorded in the scripture before they get to Mount Sinai? That is, after they've left uh, Egypt. There's six campsites that are mentioned before they get to Mount Sinai. There are six campsites mentioned after they leave Mount Sinai. 
Did you know that the word desert is mentioned seven times before they get to Sinai and seven times after they get to Sinai? Did you know that it's mentioned once that God provides manna and quail before they get to Sinai? And it's mentioned once after Sinai that God provides manna and quail. Did you know that it mentions twice that God provides water before Sinai and twice it mentions God provides water after Sinai? Did you know that God protected the Israelites from a foreign king once before Sinai and once after Sinai? Did you know that Moses met with a Mennonite, Midianite family member? I, did I say Mennonite? <laughs> I did, didn't I? I well, I meant Midianite. <laughs> for, for advice once before Sinai and once after Sinai. Well, there's more of those kinds of things, but you get the, you get the point that the author, the grand author, that is God, is using Moses to write a story in such a way that it leads people that it leads his people, that it leads these Israelite people to the main part of the story of the first five books of the Bible, and that is the Exodus zeroing in on, the, on Mount Sinai, and we're going to get even uh, closer to the, to the weeds here in our next section. But before we do, just a review of that whole Exodus uh, from uh, the leaving Egypt to Sinai, just, uh, just to review that just very quickly. We know that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's uh, house, and when he was about 40 years old, he ended up killing an uh, Egyptian because that Egyptian was mistreating an Israelite. That uh, caused uh, Moses to head for the desert, where he stayed out in the uh, desert, uh, probably somewhere around the Mount Sinai, for 40 years tending sheep. Out there, God spoke to him through a burning bush and said, I want you to lead my people out of, out of captivity, out of Egypt. And Moses eventually did, but that was after some pretty significant uh, miracles and some signs, including the whole Passover thing where uh, the Pharaoh finally said, okay, you can leave, you can go out in the desert, you can worship your God. Then there was the whole uh, crossing the Red Sea where God parted the waters and then caused the waters to come back in uh, and killing all of the Egyptians that were following him. Then they, for three months, they traveled down to Mount Sinai, where during that time God provided food, he provided manna, he helped them uh, defeat a foreign king, and three months after they left, they arrived at Mount Sinai. So that's the, kind of the history of, of getting out of slavery. And they stayed at that mountain, now, for, uh, we, we arrive at the foot of the mountain at Exodus chapter 19. The rest of Exodus, all the book of Leviticus, and the first ten chapters of Numbers all deal with what's going on at the foot of that mountain. So that's a lot of verses spent at uh, one, one location. In fact, that, uh, that story of what goes on on Mount Sinai has the most verses of any story any particular story in the in the Torah. There's one aspect of this liminal concept that really kicks in here, this time of being on the threshold, where Israel, as the nation of Israel, is they're not in slavery anymore, but neither are they in the land of freedom. And something that kicks in during liminal times often is a it's an identity crisis or change. 
uh, to use the marriage example again and coming over the threshold. On the other side, in that other room, that other reality, that other life is familiar, uh, there's a man and a woman who are not yet identified as husband and wife. That identity is going to get, come after they cross the threshold and enter into this new experience. They get a new identity then as well. And often in times of liminality, that's what happens. There's a new identity that comes with that. And that's what happened with Israel during this time, particularly at the foot of this mountain, when they learned who God was, they learned who they were, and they learned whose they were. They also learned a fair bit about this God there at the mountain. Not that they didn't know anything about him at all, but they, one thing that they learned specifically at the foot of that mountain is that God talks. God has a voice, and God spoke to his people. That was not just unusual, that was unheard of amongst the gods, the ancient gods of that time period. The ancient gods of that time period and including, I think, every other time period, did not speak to his followers, or her followers, or their followers. Why? Well, for first, they, aren't, they don't even exist. It's hard for somebody who doesn't exist to talk. So the Israelites learned that God speaks to them. In fact, he spoke to Moses directly, as in, as in a voice talking, something unheard of amongst the gods of that day. I think that even as that word got out, that Israel would, in some aspect, some measure, be the envy of the people. They have a God that talks to them. Because these other people, with these other gods, were always running around trying to figure out, what does our God want? What, is he, what are we supposed to do? He hasn't told us. It's not explicit. It's not clear. So what are we to do? Ah, we'll try this. Ah, that didn't work. Ah, we'll try this. That seemed to work. We'll do that next time. Next time that didn't work, they're always trying to figure out what the God has to say. But the God never has anything to say. At the foot of Mount Sinai, Israel learned that they have a God that speaks to them and laid out clearly what he wanted them to do. Let's take a moment to dwell on, again, just what it would have been like to have been at the foot of that mountain. Huh? We might be able to casually read Exodus chapter 19, starting at verse 16, which I did this morning. I fairly casually read that. And you might be able to casually read it around a fireplace on a snowy day in North Idaho as well. But if we'd have been there, there'd have been absolutely nothing casual about it. We read it once, we're going to read it again here in a different translation. They're at the foot of the mountain. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared, lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain, the whole mountain shook violently. 
as the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. Unquote. I submit to you that if we'd have been standing there, we wouldn't have been standing there. We'd have been laying there or kneeling there. We'd have fallen on our faces, I think. We'd have been speechless, awestruck in the most literal sense of the word. And we'd talk about that experience for the rest of our lives. I'm reminded a little bit of an experience like that, and I think I've mentioned this experience before, at least in a Sunday school class or somewhere, when I was 18 years old and I just uh, was working on a wildlife refuge in Montana. Thought I'd died and gone to heaven just to get on the wildlife refuge to work instead of working on the ranch. It was wonderful. But I was just going back to the bunkhouse on this wildlife refuge uh, on a Saturday night after, it was before I was a believer, after a, what we call a night on the town. It was about midnight and I was walking from my vehicle to the bunkhouse when all of a sudden uh, Cathedral Northern Lights appeared. Are you familiar with Cathedral Northern Lights? You probably have all seen the regular northern lights where they flash and they dance and sometimes they're green, red, yellow, or maybe just clear. This is the first time I'd ever seen, or later than talking, or ever heard anybody even talk about cathedral northern lights, where they start at the at an apex uh, at the center of the sky and then they shimmer down 360 degrees all the way down to planet Earth. It was the it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen in my life. I was, I was not only dumb, I was dumbstruck. And when they finally lifted and disappeared, I found myself, not sure how I got there, on my knees crying. Because, because of what just happened. Where the heavens declared the glory of God, I didn't know what was going on, but it was the glory of God as the Holy Spirit was beginning to start to commence to lead me to himself, which uh, took a bit longer. At Mount Sinai, the centerpiece of the Torah, God gave his people laws, stipulations, words, as the Hebrew language tells us. Pharaoh let the people go out to worship God. And at the foot of Mount Sinai, they were learning what it meant to worship God and how they were to worship God. And that worship began there at the foot of that mountain with, uh, well, to, to put it bluntly, where the fear of God was put into them. And that was the beginning of their healthy, awesome worship time. Our our third exposition point were the commandment focus. Now we're going to get down into the weeds. We started at 30,000 feet, looked at this Exodus story from uh, in terms of the whole Bible, where it fits. Then the mountain experience, we got down to see that this Exodus time, this Sinai time, is the centerpiece of the first five books of the Bible. Now we're going to get down into the weeds. We're going to zero in on Ten Commandments. Actually, then we're only going to get to just one of the commandments. And actually, then we're only going to get to one word in the, that commandment. So we're going to get down 
into the smallest of weeds. Before we get to that one word, just a comment about all, all Ten Commandments. I tend to think, and I think most of us tend to think of those uh, ten laws as that, just that, strictly laws that were given. But I submit to you that they are laws that are full of grace. They are given to God's people after he's already delivered them from slavery. They're full of grace because they, they, here's a God who has spoken. Not only has he spoken, but he's told his people where the fences are. Again, something that the other gods did not do. These people then now knew how they were supposed to live, what they were supposed to do. Full of grace. It's like uh, some playgrounds. I know some playgrounds in some grade schools have fences around them. Those fences aren't to imprison the children. They're to protect the children. Full of grace, the Ten Commandments, because they protect us as well. The theologian Daniel Block calls these Ten Commandments a Bill of Rights. Then he goes on to explain it's not a Bill of Rights like the U.S. Constitution. These ten do not focus on the person's right, he says, but on the rights of one's neighbor. An interesting way to look at the Ten Commandments. On to the one commandment that we're going to be looking at in this Exodus liminal experience. Third commandment, we already read it this morning, now we're going to read it again. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We zero in on this commandment, on this weed in the Ten Commandments, in the Exodus story, in the story of the Torah, in the story of the whole Bible, we zero in on this because it has much to do with the Israelites coming to realize who they are, what their identity is, and to what their purpose in life is, according to God. Normally, we think of this commandment as a prohibition against swearing. Do we not? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not use God's name as a swear word. However, I think a closer look at this command, particularly one word in it, broadens the meaning uh, considerably. It's in one word. It's the word take. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Some translations say misuse. Most do say take. Some say thou shalt not misuse the name of your. The Hebrew word literally means to lift up, to bear, or to carry. Thou shalt not carry, thou shalt not bear, thou shalt not lift up the name of the, your Lord in vain. It might seem like kind of a minor thing, but as we think on that, meditate on that, I think we'll come close to what one fairly scholarly Old Testament commentary explains with this one word. And I quote, The Hebrew word translated take does not mean to utter a name. It never has that meaning, but in all passages in which it has been so re rendered, it retains its proper meaning to take up, to lift up, to carry, or to bear. The intent 
uh, unquote. The intent of this word is on all of life, which includes speech, absolutely. But it primarily is telling the Israelites, in all of life, you are to bear the name of your Lord. Every aspect of it. To lift that name up, not just in speech. Later on, we get another clue that validates this particular meaning, because in Exodus chapter 28, 29, the high priest there is commanded to lift up, to bear, and to carry the names of the sons of Israel as he goes in and out of the tabernacle. He is not to go in and out of the tabernacle speaking those names. He's bearing them. They're on his clothing. He's carrying them. He's a representative of the nation of Israel to God. The nation of Israel, here at the foot of the mountain, is getting its marching orders. This is who we are, and this is what we're supposed to be doing. It's the reason for their existence, the purpose that God has chosen them as a nation. They were to bear God's name, not just in speech, not just on Saturdays, but every day and in every aspect of life they were to bear his name, to bear his character. Lift up. Not only were they to bear God's name among the, their fellow Israelites, they were to bear God's name, as Scripture tells us in many places, to the nations around them. That's why they were chosen, hasn't it? to bear his name in all aspects of life and to all people, all nations of the world. It's what they were born to do. It's what they were chosen to do. They were his treasured possession, his holy nation, his kingdom of priests. That was their vocation. This is what they were set apart for service, to bear his name in a manner worthy of who he is. God did not scare the living daylights out of those people just to watch them cringe in fright at the bottom of a mountain. <coughs> he showed them a bit of his awesomeness so that they would know who he is and that they would know in every aspect of life they were to bear his name. They were to give him a good reputation. There we have it, from 30,000 feet, from 7,500 feet, and from down in the weeds. The purpose of liminal time that God uses liminal times in our lives to prepare us for the purpose for which he has called us. It would take Israel 39 more years to begin to start to commence to understand what this was all about. That they were to be the carved image by which people saw and heard the living God. Application. Introduction, exposition, application. We want to apply this to our lives. We live in the liminal or we can see the liminal effects in many stories in Scripture. Uh, we, I just picked one, and that was, I think, the, like the, the biggest one in Scripture, but there are others. Noah and his sons had a hundred-year liminal time, did they not, where they were building a really big boat, waiting for a really big rainstorm? It was a threshold time for them. It lasted a hundred years. 
Abraham and Sarah had a lengthy liminal experience as they anticipated a baby boy. As they anticipated becoming a daddy and a mommy, having a different view of themselves. David spent considerable time between knowing he was the nation's ruler to actually becoming the ruler. He was on the threshold of becoming a king. Apostle Paul spent three years in Arabia after his conversion before beginning his ministry. During that time, he was on the threshold of becoming an apostle. And there are others. The point is this. God uses liminal experience throughout the scriptures to prepare his people, all of his people, for the purpose that he has for them. We also see liminal times in our day and age and in our culture. Teenagers are not exactly youth, even though sometimes they act exactly like youth. They're not exactly youth, but neither are they adults. They've got a seven-year liminal time period that they're going through. Two people engaged to be married. They're not completely unattached, but neither are they completely attached. They are in a liminal time space, preparing for what's coming, where their identity will change. Someone gets word that they have a significant disease or health issue, where you're called into the doctor's office and the doctor says, Mr. Smith, are you sitting down? And they enter into a liminal time. They were familiar with what was before, but not sure how this is going to end. A couple decides to get a divorce. So for some time they're going through this rigmarole that's involved in getting unattached. It's a threshold time. A lady decides to go to college. She's not a nurse yet, but she's going to be. She lives on a threshold. A person retires. As soon as you retire, you enter into a liminal time period where you're not quite sure what this is going to look like or who you even are now. All that was just introduction to the application, by the way. Now we're going to apply two application points here quickly. One is national in focus and the other is personal. For the national focus, I believe we as a nation are at a pivotal, historic threshold. We're not the nation that we were a generation ago, or even half a generation ago, not even close. And we're not real sure what we're going to be like 10 years from now. We're at a liminal time, a threshold. Those of us who are older are familiar with what was before, like for the last 70 years or so, but we're not real sure what the next 20 are going to look like. Nationally, we're at a, a threshold where I believe, uh, taking off from our first story there, we're, we're really in an ocean of liminality at this point. It's a time of transition, time of waiting, kind of wondering what's going to happen next, what will our nation be like. It's a time of confusion. I'm speaking in general, and I may be getting a little uh, carried away. There's a time of ambiguity, discomfort, disorientation, 
division, despair, even some depression. I'm speaking in regards to our nation now, uh, society at large, the secular culture, not the church. But here's where the application kicks in for us. We the church, we now the body of Christ, we now the holy nation of priests, we now the chosen people of God, is here, is here where we come in and we kick in. In the midst of this national liminal time, this upside-down, topsy-turvy, circus kind of a world, it's here where we stand up as the body of Christ, and we stand out, we are commanded to stand out, as people who bear the name of God, who lift up the name of God, who preserve the reputation of God, the message of God, the love of God, the judgment of God, a God who can spit fire, shake mountains, and save sinners. That's the big picture national application. That in the midst of the culture and the society, the context we find ourselves, that we need to stand up as bearers of God's name, as his representatives on this earth. It's not a time to be watered down, distracted, self-absorbed with ourselves. Now the more personal application is I think within the sound of my voice here this morning, there are some of us and some of you who are in some sort of liminal time period. It might be a joyful liminal time or not. Each state of liminality is, has some uniqueness attached to it, but all of them are used of God to prepare us for the purpose that he has for us. Our part, as it was for the nation of Israel, is to be faithful, to believe in God, to trust in God, to obey God, and to focus on our calling, as opposed to focus on our well-being. <laughs> that we are called to bear God's name. We are called to lift His name up. We are called to demonstrate who God is, not only in our local community, but beyond that even to the ends of the earth. There was not one step that the Israelites took on the desert sand that God wasn't with them. Not one step. They were his chosen people, and he was with them. So this morning, whether you might feel like you're on you know, some ship stuck in an ice floe, in the Antarctic, or you might feel like you're in some desert wilderness in the Middle East. But I can assure you, if you are a child of God, there's not one step you take anywhere that God is not with you. I'll close with this. In a very real sense, we live in a in a elongated, like a really long, archetypical the grand kahuna of thresholds, as it were, the granddaddy of all thresholds. We as believers, as followers of Christ, we are not who we used to be. No, because God has called us and he is working our lives. But neither are we who we are going to be. When Christ comes back and the heavens open up and we are ushered into the, the final place, our final abode, to a place that we can 
scarcely even begin to start to commence to understand what it's like. But if we've trusted in Christ and the work of his crucifixion, followed him obediently, we'll step out of this threshold, this huge liminal experience in which we are living every day, into eternity with Jesus Christ our Lord. The Israelites did not fare well on their journey through the desert. We hopefully will do better in our current journey through this societal circus. We're God's covenant community, chosen to serve Him and to bear His name, to represent Him. So may we be found faithful in the liminal. Amen.